Our gospel lesson for today, the 17th Sunday after Pentecost, comes from Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 32. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching, and they said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? They argued with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not, but later changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but then he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, people of God, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. Friday morning, as is my custom, I went to pick up the mail. Now, I have to go to the post office in order to do it here in our small town. And I walked over to the post office, and as I stepped into the lobby where all the post office boxes are, I happened to look off to one side, and on a little platform there was a recycling bin with a sign on it. And the sign said, please put political trash mail here. Political trash mail. I had to laugh at that, because on one hand, first of all, I think this is, this is pretty self-aware of the post office who handles the mail to label this particular type of mail as trash. But more so, I had to laugh about it because it seems really accurate. This time of year, this time of this year in particular, but every election year, aren't we getting tons and tons and tons of political mailings, or as they call it, political trash mail? Not only did I laugh at that because of the general sense of it, but I also laughed because it made me think of the previous day. Thursday, I went to get the mail and had exactly three pieces of mail. All three were political trash mail. All three were from the same candidate. They were three different ads, and they were addressed differently. One was addressed to me directly and was a bit of an attack ad at this particular candidate's opponent. One was addressed to my wife. Now, that one talked about the economy. And then the last one was addressed to both of us and talked about how this particular candidate will fight hard for working families. My first thought was, that's ridiculous. A, I already made up my mind about this particular election months ago, so they're kind of barking up the wrong tree. But three different ads, three different pieces of things that had to be printed off and produced, the, the postage to mail all three of them to the same place to show up on the same day. It seemed to me as utterly ridiculous and utterly laughable. But since I've got a snarky sense of humor, I wanted to joke about this, and so I sent a text off to several of my friends who share in my snarky sense of humor, just talking about this whole thing. Now, we all had our jokes, we all had our comments about it, but one of the guys 
wrote a response back, and it was kind of a side comment, but it actually kind of got me th to thinking a little bit. Now, what you need to know about this particular individual, his job, he runs a printing press, and the, the printing company that he works for is a subsidiary of a large paint producer, like a large company that makes paint. So most of what this guy produces on his printing press is labels for paint cans, but they also do some third-party printing as well, including political ads. And so he wrote back and he said, yeah, political ads are a pain, but they make a lot of money for third-party printers. That lodged in my brain, and it really kind of made me realize, you know, there's more to all of this than just these annoying political trash mail things that show up in our mailbox during election years. That it's not just one dimension. That there's a bigger, there's, there's more stuff at play in all of this. Now, I want you to kind of tuck that idea in the back of your head, this, this idea that things are not just one dimensional. As we think about this gospel lesson that we've had today. Now, if you've been following along with the lectionary text that we've had, we've kind of fast forwarded just a little bit now. Jesus had been on his way to, to Jerusalem, kind of working in his ministry out in, in the world, if we want to call it that. But now, where we pick up, he's actually in Jerusalem. And this happens, this particular story happens over the course of what we would call Holy Week, the final week of Jesus' life prior to his arrest and his crucifixion and his death and subsequent resurrection. But that's what's going on. Now, Perhaps you're familiar with the, the event known as the triumphal entry when Jesus actually comes into the city. One of the very first things he does right after that is he goes into the temple courts and does what we call a cleansing of the temple where he's throwing tables around and he's driving out merchants and he's driving out livestock and all kinds of stuff. That's all happened. And then he exited and he went and spent the night in a neighboring village. And now he's come back into the temple. And this is the next day where we pick up here. He's teaching. He's doing his Jesus thing. He's attracting crowds. And we hear opposition. We hear that the chief priests and the elders of the people come up and they start asking him about authority. Now, I got to make a side note here. As long as I've been paying attention to the Gospels, as long as I've been paying attention to the Scriptures in general, which is going back a ways. I mean, blame the day job, but, you know, I've been paying attention for a while. But for as long as I can reckon, every time I start to hear that label of the chief priests or the elders of the people, or the scribes, or the Pharisees, or the Sadducees, I always tend to have the same thought. Oh, those guys are the worst. I've called them biblical bad guys. I'll own that. And it's honestly, as I look back, not something I'm super proud of. But that's a way that I have referred to them. And now most of the time when we hear about these individuals, we don't actually get an identity to them. We're not, the, the, occasionally we'll, we'll have a specific person named, but usually not. And so perhaps it's easy to just think of them as generic characters in a story. But folks, these were real people. These were real individuals. These were real folks that were living out their lives, that were trying to do the best that they could given their, their, their experience, given the the situations they found themselves in, given the, 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 the rules and the, the things that society has taught them, given everything, they were, they were people. They were real people. And when we think of them and just think, oh, those people are the worst, those guys are the worst, we are narrowing them down to a one-dimensional caricature. Now, on the flip side, I can't help but think that they probably had that same tendency 
I can only imagine when they looked out in the temple courts and they remember, oh, this just happened yesterday when this, this random guy had the great big uproar all around him. They probably think, oh, it's that Jesus guy. He is the worst. Can you believe the way he's talking? Can you believe what he's saying, what he's teaching, what he's showing? Can you believe those idiots that are following him? Don't they know that he's, he's doing it wrong? Don't they know it's not right? They're, they probably did the same thing. They probably also did it to John the Baptist, who we also hear about when they didn't believe, because we always hear early on in the gospel that he, they went out to listen to what John the Baptist had to say, and they didn't believe him, so they probably blew him off as one-dimensional as well. It's this tendency that I think we all have as Jesus has this encounter with these individuals as they're talking about questions of authority, as they're talking about questions of decorum, as they're talking about all kinds of questions, as they're all coming at it from their own angle, from their own perspective, right, wrong, or otherwise, they're all coming at this because of the unique perspective that they carry as an individual. And we cannot fall in the trap of trying to boil these individuals or anyone else for that matter, down to a single one-dimensional characteristic. Now this goes on as we continue to hear this story. Now they go back and forth. Jesus asks, or they ask Jesus about authority. He responds back to them about, well, what about the authority of John the Baptist? Do you recognize it or not? They don't really give a straight answer. They try and play the middle ground. And so he doesn't really give them an answer. And I don't really understand why, but he doesn't. And then he tells this parable. This parable about this father with two sons, and he tells one of them, hey, go work in the vineyard. And he's like, nothing doing, Dad, but then he goes and does it. And then the other son, who's like, sure, absolutely, I'll go do it. And then he blows it off and doesn't do it. And he asks the question, well, which one actually did the will of the father? And they say, well, the first one. But honestly, both sons are kind of jerks. The first son blows off Dad, then does what he's supposed to, and the other one lies to him. Neither one of them are real great, but... Again, that's just a parable that Jesus tells. And what's the point of the parable? Well, honestly, I don't really know. But Jesus tells that, and then he shifts back into talking about John the Baptist, and he says, you went out to listen to John the Baptist. He came to you in the way of righteousness. He brought to you the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. You listened to him. You didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they believed him. And let me tell you, the prostitutes and the tax collectors are going to enter in the kingdom of heaven before you do. That is the implication of what Jesus says. And that's the end of our story. Now, here's some more folks that can probably get boiled down really easily to a one-dimensional characteristic. Whenever we hear them talk about tax collectors in the context of the gospel, you got to think about the society of the day. The Israelite people, the Jewish people, they had been conquered and overthrown by countless different empires over the course of the years. At this particular point, it's the Roman Empire. And the tax collectors, who are often Jewish people, have essentially sold out to the Romans. They are working for their oppressors. They are actually working in a way, and they are benefiting. They are, uh, they're benefiting financially and status-wise by oppressing the very people that they are part of. So they were considered sinful traitors. Prostitutes, sex workers, well, they were sinful these folks who are just doing whatever they can in order to live and survive. They're all written off as sinful, as unclean, as unacceptable. They're the ones that don't do that, don't be like that. That tends to be the one-dimensional way we think about these labels. And honestly, anytime we use a label, isn't that what we're doing, is boiling them down to one aspect. But those were real people too. 
I've said before, and I often think this, right, wrong, or otherwise, we're all the hero of our own story. We're all trying to do the best we can given our current circumstances. And do we always do it perfectly? No, of course not. Do we make mistakes? Absolutely. Are we broken, sinful people? Yes, we all are. That is true. But we also all share in the distinction that we should not, we cannot be labeled one-dimensionally. We cannot be defined or we should not be defined by any one aspect, whether it's something we have done wrong or something we have disagreed on or something we have said or something we think or something we have done or someone we have voted for, whatever. Folks, we all have this tendency to look at one another and sometimes to even look in the mirror and the person that we are looking at, we label them one-dimensionally and we write off every other aspect of that now, as we think about all this, we think about that tendency that we all have. Maybe that's what Jesus is up to. Maybe, just maybe, what he's trying to do here is to help the chief priests and the, the, the elders of the people to begin to realize this aspect that individual lives of individual people are of worth, regardless of whatever label we try and assign to them. Maybe that's what Jesus is trying to point out to them. Maybe that is what they believe that allows them to enter into the kingdom of heaven that he talks about right at the end. I've said before, John the Baptist, his message, his ministry at the beginning of the gospel mirrors exactly verbatim what Jesus says in his first public statement of ministry. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Well, to repent means to turn away from all the junk when we sin, when we miss the mark, when we do something that's not intended for us, that's not the good path that all of us are intended to walk, that's the brokenness that the world exhibits and that we exhibit, that it's a part of all of this. But we can turn away from it and turn back to that voice, to that one who calls to us, the one who made us in the first place, the one who made us lovingly and takes joy and delight in each one of us. That's God. And the kingdom of God I can only think, at least one aspect of it, is recognizing the truth of God's claim upon us. And maybe, just maybe, that's what those tax collectors and those sex workers that Jesus was talking about, maybe that's the truth that they recognize in John's ministry and in his ministry, that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, whatever, we want, whatever label we want to use for them, maybe that's the thing that they haven't recognized yet. That the rules that the structure, that the semblance of authority that's human created, that all of that ultimately doesn't matter. Now, it may not always feel like that. Oftentimes, it doesn't feel like that. But the promise of the scriptures, I believe, if we look at the whole thing from start to finish, is that we have a God that made all of this. And then God looked at all of this and decided, you know what, this is pretty great, but it would be better if there's one of you in it. And God lovingly created you. And God lovingly made you bearing the divine image, just like every other member of humanity, whether we like them or not, every single member of humanity bears that same divine image. Every single member of the human, the, the human family, the human race, whatever words we want to use, we were all created the same way. We all bear the same divine image, and we are all worthy of the same love and respect and dignity, even if we don't act like it. Even if we label one another as less than because of this or that or this or that. 
That's precisely this one-dimensional thinking that I think Jesus is talking about here. But the truth of the gospel, the truth of the kingdom of heaven, is that the one who made you from a place of love and delight claims you as beloved child. Period. I could stop right there because that's the gospel. But maybe what they have done that the others seem to have not grasped yet is they simply believed it. That despite the brokenness that I feel, that despite the labels that have been thrown my direction by the world and by society and even by myself, God's ultimate promise trumps all of it. God says, you are mine. You are loved. You are my beloved child. End of story. That is a claim. That is a promise that goes above everything. And folks, I talk about Romans 8, 38, and 39 all the time. You're probably tired of hearing me say it, but I say it over and over and over again because I believe it's true. Nothing in all creation, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that's made real in Christ Jesus. Jesus entered into our reality to bring the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? That means you are of worth. You are claimed by God, and that is true now. That's done now. And nothing you do or say or think or feel or any of that or none of that can change God's claim upon you. So live that reality. Proclaim that reality because, folks, that reality is the same for you and it's the same for everybody. That is the kingdom of God, and that's how we live in it. We live in a way that reflects that. And I think that's how the kingdom of heaven comes to fruition. The more and more and more we live into this truth. So what's that mean for us today? Well, it means that we've got to get out of this one-dimensional thinking. It means that we've got to get out of this way of labeling folks because of one aspect of their life and realize that the world is complex, that people are complex, that you are complex, that I am complex, and no one thing defines it except the claim of God upon you as beloved child. May we live into that truth, knowing that it is for us and it is for all people.